Welcome, everybody. Uh, we are here at the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast for the first time, all three of us, since July last year, 2013. It's been a long time. We've all been busy. It turns out that the three of us have some talents, but logistics are not collectively among them. Um, I'm Kevin Carey uh, from New America. I'm joined here today by Libby Nelson from Vox.com and Andrew Kelly from the American Enterprise Institute. We are broadcasting from New America's new headquarters on uh, 15th Street in Washington, D.C., so uh, our first podcast here. Hey, guys, how are you doing? Hi, Kevin. Times are good for New America, right? I think, um, is the big I think that's right. bit of news one from thing, this move. This is the little <laughs> one sign, one leading indicator when New America moves into newer, nicer, bigger digs. I feel like I'm at a company that should end in L-Y. You know, like oh, yeah, yeah. Crumbly or like <laughs> okay. Coinly or something. Yeah. I, think you know? right. I think that's right. I think that's right. I'm going to quit higher ed journalism and start my baking startup Crumbly <laughs> at this exact <laughs> moment, guys. This is the it venue I'm using to announce this. Crumbly.com. Um, what are we drinking today? We're drinking a bastardized old-fashioned. Okay. Um, and the reason we chose the old-fashioned is because the topic... Of today's conversation is basically the kids these days. The kids these days, yes. This is the special the kids these days edition of the higher ed happy hour podcast. Well, I suppose the question is, is it the kid these days? Exclamation point. <laughs> or is it the kids these days? Question mark. Or is it a dot 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 ellipse after it? I don't know. I think that's I think what it's we're an interrobang. Right. We, we're going to try to figure that out. Yeah. So the drink is a statement about my personal point of view. Okay. Which old is fashioned. I'm old fashioned. Okay, well, that's why you're here, man. Cheers. 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 <laughs> And by old-fashioned, I mean I graduated in 2002. Well, it makes you far and away the only second most old-fashioned person here around the table. Um, yeah, so uh, so I'll start by saying, one, I have always been like essentially completely skeptical and opposed to any argument that posits major generational changes among people. I just, I feel like it's mostly a marketing scam. It's like, give us a lot of money and we'll explain, quote, millennials to you, unquote, who are somehow different than everyone else before. It all seems kind of like bunk to me. However, something seems to be going on on American college campuses, uh, places uh, from which I am essentially like far, far removed, both as a student and, you know, I, again, sit in my fancy uh, DC think tank headquarters, uh, listening and watching and reading, but certainly not experiencing what's going on um, in college campuses. But uh, as anyone who's been paying attention to the news over the last at least three weeks knows, there has been a, a kind of a roiling series of protests on American college campuses uh, centered around issues of racial injustice, um, but that have resonated with a lot of other issues, um, political correctness, free speech, um, the, uh, just to kind of name some of them, there were uh, sort of incidents or protests at Yale, um, at Missouri, where both the system head um, and the chancellor of the flagship system lost their jobs, uh, Claremont McKenna, where the dean, of student, the, dean, the dean of students lost her job, a little too early in the podcast to be <laughs> doing that, um, uh, you know, at Amherst, at Dartmouth, at Smith, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's caused a lot of conversation. Even President Obama himself weighed in in an interview with, I think, George Stephanopoulos a few days ago, um, kind of questioning some of the language coming from the students, uh, uh, saying that this sort of an intolerance of dissent and an unwillingness to hear opposing points of views uh, was the road to dogmatism, I think um, he said. Um, obvious kind of political valences in a lot of these conversations. Um, a lot of people sort of, I've had personal, I've, even though I haven't written about it and probably won't write about it, um, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks kind of puzzling and thinking and talking offline with friends and on email listservs and on the phone, just trying to figure out what is going on and how to think about it. So what is going on and how should we think about it? Who wants to go first? I can go first. Okay. Um, I actually want to broaden a little bit what you said. Mm -hmm. I think one of the about Obama weighing in specifically because all of this, the, the protests over the past few weeks have seemed different and that they're dealing with different issues than sort of the political correctness, disinviting of commencement speakers, sort of outrages that people have been getting outraged about for about a year. Um, Obama actually weighed, on, weighed in on those in September and said basically exactly what he said earlier this week, um, which I, th I think he likes to have the opportunity to play reasonable looking opposite, you know, 19 year olds, which is kind of shooting fish in a barrel, but whatever. Um, so I think that this is sort of part of this, a, 
these are specific issues, but they're part of a broader pattern we've seen of how college students want to confront and deal with issues on campus, which honestly, I graduated six years ago. This feels very different from anything that I experienced on a not super, Northwestern was not like a super social justice-y place, but certainly somewhere that was politically aware and where now these are uh, currents that are going on, even if it's maybe not the top concern of the student body. This really does feel different than anything I experienced in college. Yeah, I, I'm with you on the secular change issue um, in that I'm typically skeptical of that kind of argument. Um, I think part of what's changed is uh, these things very quickly get national profiles because they are literally instantaneously beamed around the country, right? Um, like it took it took 10 minutes for that video of the mass media professor, right? To right. Be, to be basically posted, maybe not 10 at the minutes, University of Missouri. Very, at the University yeah. of Missouri, mm -hmm. sorry, yeah. Melissa Click, which is just sort of a great name for right. internet back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can go from like zero to hate object in the time it takes to like get a cup of coffee yep. in yeah. 2015. I, yeah, I wrote yeah. a thing about this today actually that's going to come up tomorrow that's sort of, we don't know how to deal, one of the reasons we don't know how to deal with this anymore or the, it's, it's creating this sort of outcry and, and interest is that usually, I mean, I don't know, even like six years ago, it would have taken four, four days of protests, probably. Mm -hmm. Like Mizzou definitely would have been national news. Mizzou would have been national news no matter what. Yale, I don't know, would have, even though it was an Ivy League school, if there had not been Twitter and Tumblr and sort of social media amplifying this, this really right. what was a very parochial. And video. And, and video amplifying yeah. what was sort of a, a few kind of parochial campus type Yale specific issues. And I think people, college students aren't ready for it. I mean, I don't know how to say to a 19-year-old, like, I'm going to interview you and you're going to say something dumb and literally 2 million people on the internet are going to see that you said something dumb. Like, we don't know how to live in this world and be on campus in this world. Yeah, I think. I, think that's, I think that's a big part of it. Dan Dresner, who writes for the Washington Post quite a bit, and he's also a professor somewhere, I can never remember where, maybe Tufts. Um, he wrote a good piece, which is sort of like, you know, college students have done dumb things on college campuses for, you know, like for centuries, you know, in some cases. And what's changed now is just the pace of the pace at which they are sort of um, publicly uh, either either, you know, um, applauded by some or or shame or shamed and critic critiqued by others. Um, I think also you've got you've got a um, you've also got a country that still feels vulnerable economically and. I think that the least sympathetic group of people on on that score are kids on a college campus. Whether that's fair or not, right? I think that I think that mainstream medium voters are like, why are these people complaining so much about living on a living on a college campus? Essentially, right? Um, but I so, think that's part of but it. But I mean, let's make a distinction. Are they actually doing quote dumb things that we never would have found out about if there wasn't an iPhone and the media? Or do we actually feel like, I mean, so dumb things are dumb things, and I think, and I think a few of these sort of quote incidents have been kind of over argued. So there was the thing where the there was a student photographer at the University of Missouri who was kind of like mildly assaulted and like pushed off a public lawn. Um, uh, inappropriately so. But the thing was, like, 24 hours later, even the students there were like, yeah, we shouldn't have done that, right? And I, and I, I mean, I think, I don't think any reasonable person would think that that was okay. I mean, he was, he had a right to be there. Um, and that was the incident, again, with the uh, mass communications uh, professor of Lady Gaga tweet studies. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah, Fifty Shades of Grey and Lady Gaga tweet studies. Um uh, you know, and then there was the, you know, the incident at Yale where the young woman ended up kind of screaming at one of the officials and it was videotaped. And I don't, it's like hard for anyone, I think, to watch that and say, oh, that's fine. That all makes sense. But I don't think that just like momentary reactions are all that we're talking about. There is a larger debate um, or people are saying that there is that the change is not just stuff being captured, but that there is a, a change in mood, a change in tone, a change in values, perhaps where there's some kind of ascendancy of a political culture uh, that is uh, built around issues uh, substantially of race and gender equity um, and other kinds of fairness. And that it's not somehow just equity, that's, though. It's identity. Right? Identity. And that, yeah. that stands um, in opposition to classic liberal values and free speech. Do you think that that's... Is it fair to say that think things are changing in that broader respect? I think it's both. And I think that's part of why this is difficult to sort of process. Because on the one hand, there, there are issues that are raised that I think most people, regardless of whether or not they agree with the tactics, 
are probably issues. I mean, there, there are things happening at Missouri that I think most people would find troubling. I think the underrepresentation of black students in higher ed is whatever you think the K-12, like, massive backstory explanation for it is, is probably troubling to most people. At the same time, there's sort of this emergence of new tactics at the same time of these as these new issues, and it's sort of hard to disentangle one for the one from the other in terms of what we're talking about. But I agree. I don't think it's just that, like, these are isolated things, and they've been happening for 30 years, and we're only hearing about them now. There very clearly is something bigger that has shifted at the same time as it's become easier to learn about these things when they're isolated. But they're also yeah. no longer isolated. I think they. I think that feeds on itself, right? So when you get when you get national tension as a protest movement, you get you continue the protest, right? That gives you like a lot of ballast to keep going. Um, and when you start getting sort of right, um, lots of plaudits from people that think like you on different campuses and stuff. I think that. So I think that helps. I think that helps sort of perpetuate something that that might normally not take the scale that it ha- that it does. I mean, I think one thing that you mentioned that I I hope we can talk about that's interesting to me is that it doesn't strike me that this is about underrepresentation. In fact. No. And I and and in fact and, and if it were, I think I you know, I for one would be a lot more sympathetic to it. I mean, one of one of the problems I have with some of the discussion is um, colleges are going to respond the way they always respond to this kind of thing, which is they're going to build something new that's designed to sort of take care of this problem, right? right? They're going to hire a new person. They're going to have a new As- office. Assistant dean of microaggression uh, right. education or something right. like the that. Stuff, the stuff that which like- I'm not write... actually making up is a, that's actually something people want. Yeah, the column like writes itself, right? Like, like so, but, and so, but my problem with that is that, like in a perverse way, right? It's the sort of, it's just, you know, the standard- cost structure of higher ed, that adds more fixed costs, more more bureaucratization of the campus, costs more money, right? And then so you've just, you've sort of like, you've, you've made the underrepresentation problem potentially worse, right? Because now it costs more to go there because there's this specially hired person to do that job. And it's not just one person, obviously, right? But, but so the proliferation think, of things. But let's get to the, to the core issues. You said you would be more sympathetic to an underrepresentation argument, but that's not what it is. So you're not sympathetic to the actual arguments, which were which are more about essentially racist thought and racist speech. No, I think so. Let me let me let me. Yeah, that's sort of a sort of a leading question. So let, let me. <laughs> what, let, yeah. well, what do you think it is? Then? So what I, I don't mean to lead actually. So I'm just trying to, so yeah. what I think. So I guess I suppose what I mean is that. The Missouri story is not just a story of an offensive thing scrawled on a bathroom wall in fecal matter. It's also a story about graduate student health insurance, which seems unrelated to race. Right. Well, and actually, as the Chronicle of Higher Ed wrote the guy this morning, the it was higher... also about the deans all hating the chancellor and right. thinking he was a bad manager. Right. So, 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 like, so, I guess, so, I guess, what I mean is like that. It's not that I would feel that that I would feel. Uh, like the political that the, that they were pursuing um, a, a more valuable end, if part of the argument was we're unhappy about how few of us there are here, in part, right? Because that's why we have such a small community, and that's partly why we f- maybe feel threatened and maybe feel like no, like we're not well taken care of. Um, the broader point that I'm trying to make is that that the solutions that colleges come up with to these things, which is firing people and hiring new people and building things, doesn't strike me as actually, it doesn't strike me as, as at, at all a solution to some of the root problems that Libby, I think, was alluding to. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with you on that, but I do think, <clears throat> although the the Missouri situation is obviously complicated, and I don't think in that state that the president and chancellor would have been forced out if there weren't other issues at play. Um I do think a lot of it was about representation and about both the sort of direct, I mean, some of their demands were very direct. We want increased student and faculty representation and also sort of this climate. I mean, the way that a climate like that arises is by persistent, you know, year over year underrepresentation that has improved somewhat, but is sort of part of this larger atmosphere. I think one of the things that was really interesting and telling to me, and I'm from Kansas City, so I have a specific interest in Missouri and and racial issues in Missouri and how I grew up in Kansas, which was like the most white place in the world. Um, and 
you know, I sort of have seen that. So I wasn't shocked by, but was actually a little bit surprised by like the number of people who came forward for after years saying, you know, who are not people who generally write about race necessarily even saying this, this was my experience in Missouri. This is, you know, this is how things have been happening on this campus for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I think it, it's never one thing. It's never yeah. like one, one root cause. No, I, heard, I talked to somebody uh, this week who, um, who had a friend who was there and, and they shared, you know, off, you know, privately that, that they themselves and their friends had had experiences where, um, they were sort of counseled away for their African-American had been counseled away from particular majors and tracks for, you know, even though even though they were performing fine in school. So things like that. But, you know, once you start to I mean, part of what I don't part of what I've been somewhat um, shocked by is, you know, like um, the folks over at, at DEFER, whatever their arm is, that's the thing, the think tank, more like the think tank. Right. And they're doing this series of like, here's in institutional racism at X school. And then it's just the gap in graduation rates between African-Americans and whites, right? So Education reform now, I think is what you Sorry, education right? reform yeah. now, yeah. yeah. And like, obviously, they have every yeah. right to publish whatever sure. they want. Yeah. But it strikes me that that's a sort of really strange... So th what they're doing is they're sort of picking out the schools where the protests are and saying that, that, that the evidence of institutional racism is the graduation rate gap. But there's a graduation rate gap everywhere. So is that institutional racism everywhere? Not everywhere. Most places, but not everywhere. Almost everywhere. I mean, I also think saying like institutional racism is most places and prestigious American higher ed is not wrong necessarily. Right. Not perhaps in the same way as the criminal justice system or some of these other some of the other things that have been really focused on in the past year. So you made this, uh, Libby, you either made this point on Twitter or you made some point that, that made me think that you made this point, but I thought it was a good <laughs> point either way. Um, Thank you for putting points so, in my mouth, so, Kevin. Which was, um, and it's something I thought about, which is that uh, this may now be so far astray from your first point that it's not yours at all, um, that like <laughs> colleges and universities have come, have, were like really, uh, uh, discriminatory institutions not very long ago. Mm -hmm. No, and, I didn't make this point. Okay, I, wrote yeah. a whole, I, wrote, I wrote a whole piece right, on this right, point. Yeah, yes, okay. yes. Um, and it, the thing that's kind of stuck in my mind... To lots of different groups. Yes, and so, Tons and so like groups. about five, four or five years ago, I interviewed the admissions director at Yale, uh, like on the record, like sitting in his office at Yale with the tape recorder in between us. Um, and he went to a... Uh, and he's a Yale alum because they like to hire their alums. Um, and he uh, came from a Jesuit high school in Kentucky, and, and he enrolled as an undergraduate sometime, I forget when, but it was like the early 60s, I think, mid 60s, something like that. And he said, look, if I had been born two years earlier, I would not have gotten into Yale because Yale did not admit Catholics. And they had a new admissions dean had come in and they said, you know, we're going to stop just totally discriminating against Catholics. Let's go find some good Jesuit schools and bring some of those guys in there. My Yale dad. admissions right, in so the 60s, my dad. by the so way. Dad, really? 1968. Okay. All right. So maybe they Cat went to... Irish Catholic. Yeah. No, actually, everyone should read about the history of Yale admissions in the 60s. It's really, really interesting. They were very early on sort of late, very late and also early on the bandwagon and sort of rethinking how they did things. So, I mean, it's that wasn't that long ago, you yeah. know, really, honestly, I mean, particularly for 400 year old institutions, it just wasn't that long ago. And, and, and they now are, you know, espouse kind of the most, uh, again, I take air quotes around every one of the words I'm about to say, like progressive, liberal, uh, uh, whatever, uh, they feel, you know, they, they think very highly of themselves or represent them as kind of themselves as like bastions of enlightenment. But but I kind of feel like maybe in making the transition from point A to point B, they left a lot of the hard internal work behind and just sort of almost felt like they could just kind of assert that they had, that all of that bad culture that had seeped into the stone there was just kind of washed away. And I kind of suspect it hasn't been, you know? And so, so like my, like my assumption is that the underlying grievance is essentially justifiable. Yeah. And that this is mostly a conversation about what to do and how to talk and sort of the norms of politics and the norms of protest and the norms of speech. Yeah, I mean, so I think part of, yeah, so part of what I, um, where I still have a question is, even if you were able to, as an, as an administration at a college, sort of make proactive efforts to recruit people from different backgrounds, recruit more of people from backgrounds that are currently not fully represented on your campus. Um, I wonder whether that will be satisfactory to the people who are protesting now. Um, I think that that's a real important question. I think that there's, I think that part of where I find John, John Chait stuff so compelling on this is that 
It's that it's no longer about arguments, right? And and the validity of arguments and the validity of evidence and whatever else. It's literally about who's making the argument, whether you take it or dismiss it, right? And it's about their are they white? Are they male? Are they some are they are they from a non underrepresented group? Then whatever they're saying, we cannot has like no value and no credence. So I, I mean, I think so. He had a debate on NPR with uh, John Chait from New York Magazine, who's, who's I think has been like one of the he's like the 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 liberal who's worried about political correctness. I think he's sort of planted that flag in the in the. It has become the, a very successful part of his brand. I yes, would say. yeah, he had a big Freddie Freddie DeBoer too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, no. Freddie DeBoer, by the way, writing a writing side note, writing a big long policy piece for New America will be published in a couple of months. It's going to wow. be wow. Awesome. Um, what policy? Uh, he wrote his uh, uh, PhD thesis on the collegiate learning assessment. He spent oh. like two years doing research on assessment. So whatever one's opinion is of Freddie DeBoer, you should see the facial expressions that Libby Nelson is making right now. Um, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> this is the point of a podcast is people can't see your oh, facial okay. expressions. All right. Sorry. Sorry. I crossed the line there. We were, supposed to be, we were in a, a, a grimace-free zone. I, fi- I uh, filed his name without comment. So, I did not. Uh, that was not. There was no... Um, but um, uh, so you probably just earned 5,000 words on Freddie DeBoer's blog just by making that comment. Um, uh, that dude is, is prolific. Uh, but I enjoy his writing, and I think he's been, I think he's, uh, uh, um, I think he's had some interesting things to say. So, yes. So, I mean, John had a big uh, cover story in New York sort of saying, you know, there's this resurgence of PC. And, of course, in the last couple of weeks, he's basically been saying, see, I told you. I told you this was happening. Um, and I mean, there definitely have been things that have happened that, uh, that, I mean, for me kind of made me go, whoa. So for example, um, at Wesleyan, somebody, uh, published an op-ed in the Argus, which is the very, very old, I think more than a century old, uh, student newspaper there, um, offering a critique of the Black Lives Matter movement. I read it. Um, it did not strike me as out of, outside any boundaries of civility or decency. Um, there were major protests and as a result of that, um, like half the funding was cut to the newspaper and redirected to other places. Now, I should say Michael Roth, who's the president of Wesleyan, has like said it wasn't defunded, um, but I don't I don't find that to be all that credible. I mean, if you take half the money, it just seems like cause and effect, right? Like you print I mean, something people don't like. Two things on that. As a, as a former student newspaper yes. editor, I find it very troubling, and I'm very glad that I'm not editing op-eds today. It was hard enough in 2008 and this is also why you shouldn't take college funding as a student newspaper. You open yourself up to stuff like that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy, but I also I didn't want to like write that point because it would make me the mm-hmm. biggest jerk of, of that entire media cycle, which would be difficult. But like it's the consequences of letting your school fund you. So and was your newspaper funded by nope. the school? So you guys got all your money from yep. advertising. And it's and terrible. Like they they now have done an alumni drive like it puts you in a, a rough spot. But I always was. Having spent a lot of time being morally superior to people who were like paid seven times what I was because they took school money, I know I'm like, see, look, this is this is why we were right to not do that. Right. Well, right, and and never right. The problem with taking the school money is that never underestimate the cowardice of higher ed leaders, right? I mean, I, I mean that I mean that in all sincerity. Right? And yeah, it doesn't mean they didn't deserve the coals they were raked over. They they absolutely did. Um, the the administration that was way out of line. So, so. there was a uh, a student group at Amherst, and again, this has been walked back. So I think we need to kind of make some distinctions between permanent and and now Andrew's shaking his head. All right, if you guys are going to do this, like, this I'm going to call you back, out. Okay, walking back. You can you can characterize my demonstrativeness when I'm off like, microphone anytime let, you we want. We don't let people walk stuff back. What do you mean? Of course people walk stuff back all the time. What are you talking well, about? Well, uh, we, we do unless it's like... So I guess in other words, would they... So would they let somebody would they let somebody walk something back? Well, is it, like if, was you, set, that's, if you make that was, a public that was opposed position to them, and everyone says that's terrible, and you listen and you say, okay, that was kind of terrible. We're going to do something less. Isn't that the way the process? My is sense to work? is that they're not returning this the favor, right? All right. Well, let me so, let me so, finish the explanation, which was yeah. which was a, no. a, a group at Amherst. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, issued a statement of demands because a lot of there's a lot of demanding now going on. Um, which is, which again, I think is 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 a good thing. Uh, one of their demands was that anybody who put up a flyer that said uh, freedom of speech, like literally freedom of speech and all lives matter, and all lives matter, of course, being a very uh, controversial uh, phrase, uh, meant as a rebuke to Black Lives Matter, um, sh- should be subject to like discipline under the student disciplinary code. Um, uh, that's the thing that they have since kind of walked back just in the last couple of days after a lot of criticism. 
Um, it's true. I know, I know, but I'm just not, I'm sort of like, I, I think that, I think that, so on the one hand, yes, in, an, in another age, this would be like totally lost to history, right? It would be like, right. like somebody remembers 40 years from now who's an alum of, of Amherst, right? Oh, remember that? That was crazy. Now it's public, now it's public knowledge. And the walking back is not what's registering with, you know, people who are writing about this stuff, especially on the right. I mean, I guess so. So part of, part of what I think is part of what I think is is really um, uh, uh, problematic is love that word um, <laughs> is uh, the fact that the fact that so much of the behavior is counterproductive to their ends, right? Which is they make themselves the, the, these these folks make themselves so unsympathetic mm -hmm. in the eyes of like mainstream journalists who like I don't pick out as like particularly conservative, right? Like. You, you, I mean, you know, you, I would not expect you to be like, whoa, that was, that was probably beyond, beyond the beyond, right? So that's right. You know, I mean, I think that was beyond beyond the, the, the Argus thing seems completely, I was like, well, I can't believe this. Uh, there was the, the sort of the Dean of Students say Claremont McKenna was essentially fired for, uh, like three words in an email where she used the phrase, so you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 So she used the phrase, some, so, uh, uh, uh I believe, a. A, a woman of color, a Latino a student uh, contacted her and she said something, yeah, we really want to work with you. We're glad you talked, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Especially uh, for students who don't, you know, meet the Claremont McKenna mold. She used the word mold, um, which as the Dean of Students, I actually read as being like presumptively self-critical, right? Because, and, and Claremont McKenna, if you don't know, is like a pretty conservative buttoned up college, right? And so uh, she lost her job, right? So, so, if you can lose your job for an email, particularly for I think a like easily contestable phrase in an email, that seems like we've crossed some kind of line around speech and dialogue and acceptability. Um, I also am, I also am going to go yeah. back to the Missouri thing on that yeah. and say my guess is there's a lot more going on at Claremont McKenna that I don't know about just because yeah that who seems, knows right so we know, found out like that, we found that out a lot does, about Missouri especially in academia that does seem, we found out a lot about Missouri so where we're like yeah. but there's stuff but there's just like so there's sort of like. You know, you get bits and pieces of information, and one of the bits that came out of Claremont, I believe it was Claremont, was the um, Asian woman who grabbed the me megaphone. Did you guys see this video? She grabbed the megaphone, and it's like the, in the middle of this pro of one of the protests, and she grabs the microphone and starts talking about how hard it is to be like limited English and learning English in America, mm -hmm. and how you get a lot of abuse, right, for not speaking English. She told an anecdote about how one of the people who um, sort of picked her out and said, learn how to speak English, happened to be African American. In the middle of the anecdote, people are booing her and shouting her down and telling her that that her in, that her entire point is illegitimate now, because the because the antagonist in the story was from the group that they were right. evidently protesting in 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 support of. So this and this gets back to something you were saying a few minutes ago, and, and I think I started to pick up on this and then lost it in some tangent of my own doing. Um, but so uh, uh, John Chait and Roxanne Gay, who's a well-known feminist, wrote a Bad Feminist. Um, they had a debate on NPR about this a couple of days ago. And, and I know this just because Chait wrote about it and kind of highlighted this as sort of a point in his favor or like see what he actually highlighted this as something that was sort of like obviously uh, evidence of why his opponents are incorrect. And it was something that uh, that Roxanne Gay said. And she said, you know, like, well, like when it comes to matters of race and gender, there can be no argument i think or discussion or and then but what she followed by saying was like i'm a woman and so if someone like disagrees with me about my experience like as a woman i have a problem with that now i think there's a couple of ways that you can read that like you can you can take that like i think the sort of the uh least charitable way of saying that is an assertion of like inviolable like identity rights that supersede debate or speech I think the more charitable way of reading that is to simply say, if I as a woman say that I've experienced sexism, someone who's who's not a woman is essentially has no standing to disagree with me. And I'm actually fairly sympathetic to that, but the question to that is, point of view. Do they have the right to disagree with you? What, what do you mean by right? I mean, do, Can they say it and not be fearful of not their be, livelihood right. and their position yes, on that's a campus? A good right? I mean, that's the question. Right. Right? Yeah. I totally that agree. Is the question, like, right? I, like, yeah. When yeah. my wife talks about childbirth, right? Yeah. Like, I don't have anything to say for exactly this reason, mm -hmm. right? But if I did want, if I wanted to say, hey, that wasn't so bad. I right? suspect in the context should... of your marriage, you don't have the right to say that and that you would that's lose e some kind of position. That's exactly right. <laughs> so. I mean, but I mean, I think the issue in a lot of 
what John Shade has written, which I think is some of, some of which is really interesting and all of which is like obviously provoked a year of discussion, which is a writer is basically the ultimate goal, is there seems to be this conflation of like criticism, loss of livelihood, censorship that like, you know, some of it is like, no, you should not be fired for three words you wrote in an email. If that's actually what happened, that's absurd. On the other hand, you don't have the right to say, I can say that I disagree with your lived experience of sexism and not have anyone yell at you for it. And it really feels like half of that initial essay and half of the like ensuing reaction was mm-hmm. people are mean to me on the internet when I say things that they don't like. And like, I just am, a, I, I feel like this has gotten conflated in a really significant and bizarre way. I think there's, I think that the new, um, the new currency on the internet in particular is claiming that you're being silenced. Right. And so, so like, I agree with you, like the whole, like, you know, John Chait probably argues that some of that is him being silenced by people who disagree with him. But by the way, like the the whole like I'm being silenced is like tossed around. All I don't the think time. he would say that actually. Like I don't think I don't actually think he would make that argument about himself. He was pretty careful to not to because. Well, I guess what I mean what I mean is like what I mean is like if you when you get when you get the deluge of the people uh, carping at you on Twitter, it can feel like you're being ganged up on. Maybe not silenced, but ganged up on and kind of the mob, right? So, but I mean, what I mean is that like, it's, it's fine for people to pick on you. It's fine for people to take what you said and be offended by it. It's another thing for people to say, to say, you shouldn't have the right to say that. That's where I think, that's the line I think that we're describing, right? So, but, so, but I mean, it's interesting because, so that is the question I think. And, and the idea that there are absolute free speech, well, I have two points to make and they're only related. So I'm going to make the first one because I've been trying to make it, or not, not you guys have been stopping me. I've been stopping <laughs> yes. myself. Sorry, you've been silencing by making, I've been, been silenced. <laughs> Kevin's been silenced. The bourbon. So one is, go blog about it being this silenced. is kind of my own, like some of my own like self-reflection, right? So, so again, I had these really visceral reactions to the, the photographer being pushed to the Argus thing. But part of it is just because we're all used to racism. Right. So you read something like, oh, somebody like, you know, was called an epitaph or somebody was like there was this act of discrimination or like, you know, a uh, Hispanic woman is, uh, gets like goes into her own house. 18 white police officers show up. It's we, you get used to it. You can be have exactly the right values and exactly the right philosophies. But you just the, the kind of the numbing repetition of American racism, like just desensitizes us all, I think, or at least it desensitizes me on some level. On the other hand, we live in a society with super robust protections of free speech. Um, And I have, like personally, and people in the media and people in academia are much more attuned to free speech because that's their livelihood, right? So if you're like a white person who writes for a living, on some level, you have a much greater interest in any infringement or any violation of your speech rights um, then racism, which is to you on some level removed and abstract. So I think if, you, some, if you are a white person in the media, yes, if you are a white person in the media, and so I think on some level, so part of me feels like there are a lot of white people in the media who are overreacting a little bit to some like some real but un, uh, ultimately fairly small infringements of free speech rights, just because we've gotten used to racism, which is basically built into the DNA of our society. Here's the other thing I want to say about the, the media reaction to some of this stuff. I was just writing about Smith, and it's not up yet. It's, it'll be up on Sunday. Say what you mean, because we haven't said yeah, that. Yeah, um, at, at Smith, there was, there was like the latest it, it, uh, iteration of this. It's hard to keep them straight. Yeah, which was they had a protest in solidarity with Mizzou. It was not really a protest. It was more like a like open mic afternoon group therapy. We're going to discuss our experiences with racism at Smith and elsewhere for a few hours and told the media they could only enter if they were willing to state openly that they were sympathetic to it, which is silly. And like, I rolled my eyes at But I also think there's like an actual question at some point. Like this is a group of private students on a private campus discussing a thing like the fact that the media is interested in it does not actually mean that the media has an absolute right to show up at it. Like you would not show up at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and say you were on a private campus that gets federal money and therefore like this is of interest to people because it probably is. Like therefore I demand to, to report on it. And I think like when you get to the point of the faculty member at Mizzou or people who are sort of like physically throwing you out, like that was obviously way over the line and I watched that and I was angry. I think especially in Washington, journalists are so used to everybody being like thrilled that they show up and want to cover what they have to say that we forget that like maybe people, especially in the environment we've been discussing where everything goes viral, everything is like an international news story within 20 seconds. Like 
I don't know if I were leading one of these protests on a campus, I would be like, I don't want you taking my picture. Like, I don't, I don't want to talk to you. And like, you know, no, I'm good. Um, like, I, I do think that that's, there, there seem to be, again, like conflations of the most serious, like, the Missouri being thrown out photographer situation that was ridiculous with like, we are offended that these protesters don't seem to feel like they need the media. Yeah. I think, I do think that there's a, so let's just posit, um, Louis going to disagree, but let's just posit that one of the, one of the groups that is close in its level of sensitivity to co American college students are journalists. Sure. Right. Um, yeah. there's sort of a, there's a, there's a community of them. They feel like they are, Right, it's the fourth estate kind of yeah, deal, no, I, right? I don't disagree at so all. they sort of circle the wagon. They also feel and, embattled in their yeah, own way. I don't, yeah, I don't absolutely. At all. I completely yeah. agree. absolutely. So, so I think, so I think this was like a perfect storm of sensitivity in some <laughs> sense, right? Like you had you had like two groups of very high journalists sensitive love people. nothing more right. than being yeah. able to get on their high right. horse and be like, "You were censoring me." So, like, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. like David me. Simon on Twitter said that <laughs> yes, the, said with, that they were being fascistic yeah, by pushing the photographer with Roxanne Gay and he got into a big argument with Tracy McMillan column about that, which which Sang is Day, still too. going on three days later. Yeah, don't the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's many. Days like as of later. a few hours ago, I yeah. think they were still having it out, or it was like still. Don't that ever Twitter pick a fight feud, with Don't ever pick a fight with higher ed Twitter. Higher that ed Twitter feud is like still you. metastasizing as of today, like in day three, which yeah. is impressive even for Twitter. I do think that there's that there's a legitimate question as to what's public and what's private, right? So if you want to have a private meeting with people on your campus, um, you should have the right to do that. Um, there's no open meeting law around spontaneous association, right? So, um, so I do think that that's a legitimate claim. When you are, <clears throat> when you are protesting on a public lawn, right? That the claim to privacy seems like totally illegitimate. Yeah. To and that's I basically um, that was basically right. draw the line yeah. as well. Like, I, I would have been, been, been pissed if I but had like the next the next day they the said like, yeah you know. media will come one come all. I mean I think it took like yeah. 24 hours for the students to self correct on that. Yeah, but I think, but like, but I think what Libby's pointing out is that there's a viral nature to like, oh, they were able to do that, and they actually they got a lot of headlines, and in some places they got applauded mm -hmm. for for doing that, for limiting uh, media access to a public event, um, which to me s seems like just not the not uh, in keeping with freedom of the press. But um, yeah, I do think that there's uh, like the, the, so so I do think that there's a you should not. On a college campus, you should be, you should feel free to express yourself to your peers in a way that doesn't set you up for like international retribution, right? Like I think that's a fair point. So so if you so if you don't want that though, then then you should do have the discussion in private. Yeah, um, and I and I think like I, yeah, I don't like this. Like I, I don't like that this this environment that I don't think is anybody's fault has evolved where nineteen, twenty, twenty one, twenty two year olds are not able to sort of like have it out with their with adults on campus in any way that is like conducive to any kind of reflection or any kind of walk back on either side or any kind of like anything that's actually productive. I don't, but I don't know that you can un, you know, if I knew how to uncreate that environment, if I thought like I as a journalist could fix it by like not writing about these things for three days, which like honestly is what I do most of the time anyway, I would, but like, I don't know that it's fixable and I don't, I unfortunately sort of see this as like a toxic cycle that's only going to get more toxic. I think you're right. One thing that I think is interesting is how um, like implicit in a lot of the complaints is a, a lot of the students' complaints is almost an acknowledgement or appeal to the authority of the university. It's like, why haven't you stopped this from happening? Why haven't you created a safe space, to use a phrase that's very popular these days? Um, and I'm, I'm like the linguistics of this kind of fascinate me sort of these words like harm, right? Like harm is a word that comes out, you know, safe, like this, this conflation of, um, physicality with, uh, uh, intellectual discourse as being more or less the same thing. Um, like I, it never occurred to me as a college student. And I think like all of us have the, in some ways the disadvantage of having been college students. Cause it's almost hard, it's hard to completely disassociate yourself, but it, it never occurred to me to expect any of what people are expecting of these college administrators, right? So like you go back to kind of the Yale thing where the, the critique was, if you sort of take it on its face and, and kind of uh, uh, take the histrionics aside, you know, the critique was, well, like the place where I live should be, I should be, I shouldn't have to 
be confronted with ideas that cause me pain in the place where I live. So the woman was upset with like the master of her, of her uh, sort of a bit of an unfortunate word, perhaps. Um, uh, okay, so can we get to like Woodrow Wilson and like the legacy of racism too? Let's do that. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I had a point to make about but, I had a point to make about this, but okay. fine, we can go on. With so, it. so no, 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 but like later. So, 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 but you know, like this idea that 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 that's that part of the things that you're signing up for that the college ought to provide to you is this kind of cocoon of safety oh. and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I, I, as a college student, I just never thought about that. I never thought about any of these things. I, I think it's. Like, a, like, I think. I think that. I think the problem is, that is good or bad? it's a massive disservice to people. Right, like the real world, you cannot. If you're, if you're disappointed, like if I were disappointed in the way that the 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 president of my think tank, right, if he invited somebody that I disagreed with, for instance, to pull something from the headlines, right, like the notion that I would band together with my fellow with my fellow people, right, and and demand their resignation and expect to get it, is kind of crazy. Right. That's that's, a, yeah, but that's a totally different, like that's a totally different relationship than the one that that's fine. colleges for in their marketing that's fine, are but, promising their students. But if you, but but if you, but so that's that's fine if you assume that people decide when they leave college that those rules don't apply anymore, right? That the, that that their whole life should be. I don't get the sense that people leave college and be like, "Wow, that was a great four years of being in this cocoon where I didn't have to hear anything I disagreed with." I'm looking forward to hearing all the things I didn't agree with, right? I don't know. I mean, didn't I we out? have this, like, political out correctness outrage in, like, 1993, and we appear to mostly still have free speech as a country? Like, you know, I do think it's, it's hard to say because most of these college kids now are still in college from when this started a year ago. But, like, I actually do think that's totally possible. That's that. I think that's fine. I think the question is, um, are you equipping – like, we, we've certainly had doubts about um, the – level of preparedness for the world of work and the world and the professional world among college students certainly since the 90s probably probably before then right so i do think that there's a level of um if you encourage if you encourage people to to believe that their uh that that every one of their whims will be catered to right and this is like forget the forget the protest forget it's it's everything right it's not just that it's it's the consumerist right the consumerism in higher ed if you if you convince people that that's how the world works right then they come out of the world and i mean we see you you must see this but when this you hire part, people you you must see this an assertion of the way the world should work and i want to acknowledge that i am to some extent taking one side of an argument with my own inner andrew kelly so i in, in saying this so i appreciate andrew taking the other side of it um and, and i don't mean to and so i don't mean to to uh, uh attribute that all to you but um like on some level, the the well, the world is a tough place. It's it's kind of like well, you're gonna meet a lot of racist assholes in the real world, and so you should just kind of learn here and you know what I'm saying. I mean, no, it's that no, it's that it's that it's that in order to be prepared to combat the racist assholes, you need a whole different set of tools when you enter the real world. Do you see what I'm saying? Like you need petition and initiative and voter turnout and right like. People don't just respond to your whim because there are lots of competing parties in an American democracy. You see what I'm saying? Like you have to you have to embrace pluralism and realize that that's what you're up against. But I think that people are saying I'm not embracing that kind of pluralism. So this is about where we draw these lines, right? So so and on some level, I really do. I feel like the the kind of the thread in a lot of the protests is just the next stage in our societies, like unbelievably painful and lengthy racial reconciliation where where we just keep slowly drawing the line a little farther out about what's acceptable and students are sort of saying hey you know here are all the ways that i experience racism and i and i don't i'm not putting up with any of them they should none of them should exist they're all illegitimate and basically my demand is that the college uh make it make it make it that way that that i mean you know like I like I feel like in a just world, uh, an African American student would experience exactly as much racism in college as I experienced as a white person, which is to say, none whatsoever of any fashion at all. Um, and so they're just like, well, we're not we're not willing to put up with it. Some, we're not, some, it's illegitimate. Why some, should we? Why should we offer sort of uh, sucker and support? And like, why should we engage with illegitimacy? Some people today would suggest that you, Kevin Carey, were you going to college today and expressing your opinion? 
that you would be not the victim of racism, but the victim of discrimination based on your personage. You're a white man. I guess right? some people. I mean, there's always some people out there. Yeah, right? but so, like, but like, so. but this is what's at issue, right? This is part of what, part of what's at issue, right? Is like, do I do you have standing? to express your opinion on a college campus or should you not have the right to do that? This this is what it is. You are exactly right about that. I mean, the idea that there are absolute free speech rights on a college campus is completely wrong. And of course there aren't. Of course there are all kinds of things that you're not allowed to say and be either a student or employed by a college. And I actually don't think anyone disagrees with that in the same way that you're, you know, in the confines of a marriage, you're not allowed to actually like talk smack about childbirth to your wife. You're just not allowed to, right? That's just, to know that there is that a is literal just, Holocaust you can try. faculty yeah. at Northwestern. There is a lot you are allowed to say at a right. no, 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 higher no, education. Well, but I mean, sure, yeah. But I mean, not everything, right? Yeah. I mean, so sure. I mean, that, but I mean, Student, I mean, students not necessarily, but I think, right? I think a lot of people will be prepared to stand up and say that that's a problem. You know I, I, mean? I personally mostly, you know, I understand the principle at hand here, but it's like not that but is like not we've got, I mean, but like it's really it starts to get hard to draw those lines right war churchill right i mean like yeah so we're just but so this just feels like a process of redrawing them on some level and so like the so like the the progressive in me feels like it's redrawing them in a way that's essentially consistent with my values and so i have more i have more tolerance i suppose for the messiness of yeah, I mean, I want to this in terms of things trickling out into the real world. This is not this does not at the moment apply to me, but the Vox Media um, product team, which is what we call our developers and people who work on sort of the computer side of things, has written a code of conduct that is really interesting in that it it mentions it has an entire section on microaggressions and how we believe they are real and we believe they don't have a place in our company. Um, and so I think I think you're right in that this doesn't all necessarily stay in college. But that it may be sort of the way that Kevin is suggesting that, like, maybe we can say that there are behaviors that should not be a part of many parts of our world. I made a Twitter joke about I that. didn't see it. And I know. You're still employed? <clears throat> no. Uh, yeah. Well, well done, a, a, <laughs> AI has different standards. Um, <laughs> no, I said, no, I said we should, there should be, a, it was very, it was harmless. The, I said there it's should the be harmless a, ones to get I said trouble. there should be a Christmas movie um, about liberal policy wonks in D.C. and it should be called Well Actually. <laughs> okay so oh, i did see that that, oh, was, that was my clever. attempt at humor oh, yeah. that was clever i did see that <laughs> I, I i personally believe that love actually is the worst movie produced in the last 30 years by hollywood i hate it so much i'm sorry kevin we need to have a separate, a separate, have a separate podcast favorite movie this. favorite yeah. movie of rick has Really, I'm so it's unsurprised maybe not, by that. If not favorite, it's like I'm top so five. Unsurprised I want to watch that sure. actually with Rick Hess. This is my this okay. is my new goal. Done. We have live to make that it. Live yes. tweet it. Live it's, blog it. I saw it like in the theater. God knows why. It's so terrible. It is the worst. It is so bad. <laughs> it's ensemble box office. It is gold. Okay, so love. I'm just gonna. We're just gonna go here right now before we get back to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, love actually is what happened. Some it's like somebody said. Well, every romantic comedy. Has like the meet cute bit and the they accidentally broke up bit and they get back together bit and that those are the parts that people like. So instead of just having one of each of those three parts with a lot of BS in between, let's just do it six times and that's the whole movie will just be those three things all mixed together. What would happen? And what would happen is that you would get a terrible, terrible movie. Bad Santa is the best Christmas movie ever made. Um, I we probably need to do a Christmas movie edition. Special Christmas, okay. Um, love actually, right. love actually. Whatever you think of it, it does have Rick Grimes from Walking Dead um, as, he, oh, the, the, as the love struck guy with the cards. Yeah, Love Actually is one of those movies where I'm increasingly aware of its many terrible flaws, and I don't care. I love it. I love it it's, absolutely. I'm I with watch, you on I watch, that. I watch, I'm I with you on Christmas. that. Like right. the more I watch it, the more it bothers me on every level. But I can't. I love it. I love it too much. It is more than. Change, change of, slight change of, not change of subject. Um, at Princeton, at Princeton, students have demanded that uh, essentially all references to Woodrow Wilson, former president of both Princeton and the pres and America. <laughs> um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, be expunged. And of course, and of course, of course, this is also part of the, we haven't mentioned this, but this is part of the debate at Yale. Um, one of the colleges... Uh, at Yale is Calhoun College. It's named after John Calhoun, probably the worst American in history. Like seriously, if you were like top five worst people who were American citizens, John Calhoun would be like actually. Like I would public, actually vote for him. Only, no, no, not... like, anybody, anybody, worst American of all time, John Calhoun. 
that could also be a separate. We can do that with the Love Actually podcast. <laughs> can we do this Christmas um, movie? Is it also worst? Americans we should bring in. Time? We should bring in top ten worst Americans of all time. Okay, he's he. Uh, there's no credible top ten list that John Calhoun is not on. I'm just gonna say that right now. Um, so what do we think? I mean, how do we? I mean, in the argument, so Dylan Matthews made this argument in Vox just today, um, basically saying, look, it's fair to. Uh, it's fair to judge the racism of people in the context of their times. If you judge the racism of Woodrow Wilson in the context of his times, he was a terrible, terrible person even then. Mm. And I, you know, and, and again, I do, I do feel like uh, a part of, like one of the reasons that we continue to have terrible race problems in America is that our evolution has been one of continued tolerance and forgiveness of racists. Because, well, you know, we got to go along to get along and there are bigger things happening here but like, in America. So, but like a lot, what do you guys think? Real live racists we tolerate and really? Like, we sure. Uh, when, we, I, when I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2001, Strom Thurmond was the senator from South Carolina. So, yes, real live racists. Uh, popularly elected yeah, absolutely. by the people of South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. So, that's so like, so in other words, it's it sounds like your solution to that would be to render the verdict of the people of South Carolina illegitimate? I have no solution. Absolutely not. But that's not tolerating. That's not tolerating somebody who's... The people of South Carolina were tolerating him. They were sending him to Washington. No, they weren't tolerating him. They were electing him. Well, even worse then, right? You know, I mean, so... So no, I wouldn't, I mean... But you have to... You have to... (laughs) You have to have, like, some... I mean, do you have no... Like, this is where we part company always, which is uh, that I think democracy is actually a good, good thing. No, no, no. Take that back. We're not parting company whether democracy is a good thing. Majority rule. Also in favor of that. Yeah. As I said, I, I wouldn't, there's no rule I would say. It's just an observation about our character as a nation. I don't have strong feelings on Woodrow Wilson. I know that I read a book about him in college that featured part of his time as president of Princeton. And he was actually colossally unpopular at Princeton because he tried to like sort of redraw the um, the way Princeton was organized. So um, if Princeton wants to get rid of him... Um, that's their prerogative. Their yeah. private institution. Well, so it's, their, it's their prerogative, but should they, should they, is there some line of, of racism for historical figures that should cause us to disassociate ourselves with them now? That's the question that we're trying to figure I'm out. I'm pretty sure John Calhoun is beyond whatever pale we Again, established. Worst, I think Wilson is a little worst tri- I think Wilson American is a little ever. So Henry Clay. I think, yes. I think it is reasonable Henry Clay? to. I'm just going to own up to not knowing enough about Henry Clay. Henry Clay, yes, Compromise I, of 1850. Okay. I mean, I'm aware, I'm aware of who he yeah. is. I have not like yeah. made a reasonable was moral he, judgment on Henry Clay, to be yeah. honest. Um, I'm just starting to start, start throwing out. I'm going to start. Um, this oh. is a period of history I'm familiar with. Okay, so you're so, going to. All right. Yeah. I have, a, Webster, I have a historian and a Missourian, yeah. so I'm at a disadvantage. But so. Kansan. Kansan. Oh, Kansan. We were a free state during the Civil War, and we were very proud of that. See, this is not do this already. Leading Kansas. That's right. I called a Kansan. I'm always amazed by all this like Confederate celebration. I called a Kansan and Missourian, and. I'm glad to still be in good company with her. Thank I you. mean, I think this is all mostly, um, I think this is like red herring. I mean, like you're not going to find, you're not going to find somebody in me who says, oh, well, historically it's always been that way. So it should always be that way. Like that's for alumni to argue over. Right. I mean, I don't have strong feelings on that. Um, I think if, I think if Princeton decides as a private institution to walk itself back from, Woodrow Wilson, that's their prerogative. I may disagree with it, and I may, and I, I, I honestly, I don't like this is something that I have like no priors on. Okay, <laughs> right. I really don't. I mean, the Calhoun College thing at Yale's been going on forever, right? Like it's not a new thing. It's not. It's not like it so was why, just why named don't they that. rename it then? Like, and yeah, I was another. Is there like a pro a pro Calhoun? Oh, I'm sure. There is. I think Absolutely. I think tradition at any Ivy League college is an extraordinary. Everybody who's fashion. a member of Calhoun College doesn't want Calhoun College to be changed. Not, maybe not everybody, but many people, right? Steve because Trachtenberg, that's... Steve Trachtenberg told me they should just rename it after some other dude whose also name was also Calhoun. Apparently there's a couple <laughs> other Calhoun I'm alumni sure. of Yale that's who are named... That's an amazing cop-out. Yeah, that's I'm amazing sure. That's, that's why Steve Trachtenberg was president of a great but, American university. But let's be, re- let's be real, right? Like, so UVA... As an institution, sure, Mr. Jeffers should, University should shutter. Actually, right? owned on the on this score, right? Somebody with a highly problematic uh, 
attitude towards slavery. Yeah. But so, on this I mean, score, George Washington University, Stephen Trachtenberg's yeah, but baby. You no, know, I just kind of feel, but I feel like there's Should some, they change the name? There's some calculus that we go through. Should right? they let's, change so the name? Let's though. just be honest about how everyone actually thinks about this, which is to go through some calculus where we say, what was sort of the median level of racism among everyone at that time? Where was that person relative to that median? How much other good stuff did they do for America? Add it all up, and we come to where we come to. So, of course, like, you know, Abraham Lincoln said lots of things that would get you drummed out of polite company uh, uh, in 2015, and yet he's considered to be our greatest American president for completely obvious reasons. Everyone thinks this way. So, so the question who, is just, if we, so if we apply that do, criteria to Woodrow to do, Wilson, how do we Who gets to write the formula? <laughs> Oh, like we do now like who yeah, well, who's we right like this is what like this is what i'm confused by right like if we like there's no we who writes down the formula of who gets the pros it's and the not cons. a formula it's just a consensus i suppose yeah but, but am i am like i wrong that everyone on some level constantly evaluates historical figures that way and so we're good with George Washington. Like, f George Washington is fine under that criteria. Thomas Jefferson really kind of depends on how you think about a lot of things. When you start, We to, don't think of them the same way. When right? you start to really we dig into this, don't think of them the, the way, same way. When you start to really dig into right. this, it gets, it, like, most of the American historical figures have things that people would object to, right? Of course. FDR, the whole New Deal, buying off the South. Right. I mean, lots of stuff. Right, but I feel like that's where the median racism of the time variable enters into the equation. Yeah, but that's sort of like. Oh, look, FDR. I mean, it is FDR relevance. put like, the so Japanese but, 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 concentration camps, but, but Democrats the, but, still like him. But by the median racism of the time, like John Calhoun, right? Like he's, no, 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 he was he the was worst, he was worst really American ever. They very, actually very have. Big. So let's just so so a plug for empirical social science. The guy there's a there's a there's a. A crew of guys who've put every vote and every uh, member of the U.S. Congress mm -hmm. on the ideological continuum. It's called Vote View. You can go and look. This is that. So John chart Calhoun that, will be on there. This is that chart that gets that goes from like a big cloud of pink to just red on one yes, side. Yes, Keith Poole and Howard yeah. Rosenthal. It's like the most important thing to understand about America, more or yes. less. Yes, Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal. And by the way, the key to understanding that is that the South went to Republican. The reason Over polarization the was years. low. The reason polarization sure, sure. was oh, low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everyone knows that. Southern Democrats. No, no, no actually, not almost, knows almost no, no one knows yeah. that. It's not just, for lack of trying. Just people who like read what we read and talk about what we talk about know that. Like almost no one knows. When that. I yeah, when I tell people, hey, when they people start to like talk about how great things were when it was less polarized. Yeah, no, my dad is just like, in the forties and fifties. My dad's like, ah, like, oh, mm. people used to cooperate. But look, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't been reading Vox or whatever. Guys, so. we have like four minutes. Okay. By the way. All right. Libby's got to go. <laughs> no, it's, we, so, you said we had a hard stop before. We had a hard stop before. Closing thoughts. Um, all right. We've done a good job with this subject. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate it. Um, a few closing thoughts. One, we've all been writing. What have we been writing about? I wrote, I'm going to say first, mostly just because I want to talk about myself. I wrote a long profile of the historian's historian, Lawrence Vesey. Yeah. Everyone should read it. It's like my most favorite thing that I think I've written. Uh, it was in the Chronicle of Higher Ed. It's behind a paywall. If you can't read it, email me. I'll send it to you. I um I liked the the picture that you had for him because did you read it the looked, piece too. I, hope. I did read the piece. It looked like every every guy that I served in Santa Cruz with. <laughs> Honestly, like yeah. everybody in Santa Cruz looks like God or 20 Santa Claus. Twenty percent of the professoriate at Berkeley. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, or right, or UC Santa Cruz. Right. More appropriately, um, what am I writing? We just released a piece on income-based repayment and how um, we tried to hash out how um, income-based repayment as an idea is. There's nothing wrong with it, and it's actually it can be an efficient system. It can be a good system. Um, the current tools are really poorly designed, and so we laid out a bunch of ideas. You know, we got the ideas. new the new numbers came in yesterday, and one third of the entire portfolio is an IBR now. Yep. One third. Yep. I know this because Jason Delisle is right near me. Jason Delisle is. He has a spreadsheet set up. The sky is falling on yeah. Jason Delisle. Um, yeah. So that's that's the latest thing we've. The been world is on. definitely at some point there will be a moment where someone says no one said this would happen, and I'm going to say Jason Delisle told everyone it would happen yep. a long time ago. Yep. I'm just I believe I believe an earlier podcast yeah. even was um, we discussed how this was your one of your arguments that this is sort of a backdoor federal ownership I did. of I did say that the funding of higher ed. So your your uh, your point's going to come true. Libby, what have you been writing about? Oh my God, I've written so many things. I, I had a very busy week last week. Yes, way more than, um, I, way more than either one of us. 
I'm going to talk about something I've written that hopefully will be out in the world almost by the time this podcast comes out, though. I have finally written a very long essay on In Loco Parentis and sort of the changing relationship between colleges and students and how we sort of switched from an In Loco Parentis model to a consumerist model and how this underlies a lot of these debates that we've been having. So it was massively informed by the conversations I've had with you guys over the past year. And we've actually put it on hold because it, it doesn't apply to Yale and Mizzou so much as it yeah. applies to some of the other stuff from earlier mm -hmm. this year. And it felt a little weird to sort of push something out that wasn't also about structural racism at this moment, but sort of a, a broader look at some of the other non-related to those issues, changing currents in higher ed. So that should be out the Monday after things. Very exciting. Oh, I also wrote a piece about Harvard movies. Intruders yeah, of Harvard. That, yeah. um, the third in the uh, four-part series on popular culture and higher Who's education. Was the C. Thomas Howell movie? Uh, the, one of the six, yes. Yeah. That, uh, uh, so Libby... Called. You're next. You have to write one now. I've written three. I know. Written I'm, one. I'm really letting down. I tried to, my I tried to place it in box. Box did not work. <sighs> I know. Let me leave. Can we leave with one thought to like throw on the table? We have to, to talk about uh, Big Ten football also. So, um, right. Which is, uh, I'm the open question for me is whether this sort of discussion on college campuses uh, pushes higher ed reform as a larger question forward or doesn't do anything to it or moves it backwards. Yeah, I mean, didn't I have thoughts, but I want it. We should return to this. Yeah, I'm like, just throwing out there. Like a minute. I mean, like for the next arguably, one. <laughs> arguably, this is where Ronald Reagan's career started right now, right? You know, like all the crazy stuff happened on campus. The median <laughs> middle just, class order was like. That the 60s okay. were still way crazier okay. than anything that was happening. I believe campus, Reagan's really. discussion was where Reagan's point was he said something like orgies beyond description was the way he <laughs> oh, described it. Really? I believe I so. Yeah. That might be apocryphal, but can they be so. beyond a description? Thank you, listeners, for listening. Um, I'm Kevin Carey with Libby Nelson and Andrew Kelly. This is the Higher Ed Happy Hour, and we are done. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.